Western democracies are having a moment, and it's not necessarily a good moment. People are questioning their leadership, their institutions, their systems of government. It's at times like these where we need sane, rational, and wise leaders, but they seem to be in short supply. History has shown us examples of the kinds of leaders we need, and it takes someone who has observed and worked with them to allay our fears. Canadian Arthur Milnes has studied it all from both the outside as a journalist and from the inside as a speechwriter for Canadian prime ministers. So I'm wondering, where's the big project and where is the president, or in our case, the prime minister, willing to risk it all and try for that moonshot? Because I think we'll, we will follow him. He's a witness to history, and he's here to talk about it. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. I'm going to start with a relatively basic question. How do you define Arthur Milnes? What a question. Wow. If I had to step back from it in third person, I would hope you would say eclectic. Eclectic interests, eclectic career, kind of a political known person's land where I kind of am eclectic there. I, I lean left, I lean right, I le- I'm in the center, I'm all over the place, I think like most average citizen today. And I like a good laugh. I take my work seriously, but not myself and believe strongly that if you can't laugh at yourself, then you're in deep, deep trouble in this world. Yes. And I I do believe that we all lean left and right, even more so after happy hour. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You're an award-winning journalist, a public historian, a political speech writer. Which came first? Journalist, I guess. My father was a history teacher. So my father had a large library personal library at home. And starting at the earliest age, I was attracted to books about Canadian prime ministers and American presidents that were in dad's library. That led me to a lifelong interest in Canadian and American politics. And that took me into, I worked in politics first, right out of university. I was an assistant at the Ontario legislature, just a young guy who would write speeches, write letters, carry the boss's briefcase, (laughs) do anything. It was a great experience. And then from that, I got into journalism and became a reporter for many, many years. And doing that, again, I I developed a healthy respect for political leaders of all parties, really. And in many ways, I got frustrated in that lack of historical literacy among many of my own colleagues as reporters. And I found in many ways we were operating in a vacuum where we were discussing all these current day issues and writing about them, but we often didn't know how we got to those places. So I found my readings from my father's basement all those years ago actually proved quite helpful. I brought a very, I hope I brought, historical historical view to present-day current events that my readers liked, it seemed, and I enjoyed, and it was kind of a niche that wasn't common out there. How do you find the differences or how do you how do you navigate the differences between the journalist side and the internal political guy? Oh, interesting. Well, I've always believed when journalists tell you that they have no no viewpoints, that's just not true. We all have viewpoints on particularly if you're involved in current affairs, you're definitely going to have developed opinions, right, left, center, middle, take your pick. I, I always took a I tried wherever I could was basically just to recognize my biases and know what I knew about myself. And then therefore I hoped, and and I wasn't always successful. Nobody's 100% perfect, that's for sure. 
I would try to bring those the self-knowledge to my interviewing and stuff. And I think I might have overcompensated sometimes, which can be healthy, which is I would be tougher on people I agreed with. It, uh, it was a little safety valve for me. And uh, like I said, I didn't always succeed. My dad kind of taught me that when I was a kid, which is when you're, if you're disputing with somebody, at the end of the day, you only have to ask yourself, were you fair? And if your argument or if you're playing hockey, road hockey with the other guy, as long as you did your best and you knew you didn't play dirty, it was a good day, whether you won or lost. So I tried to, I tried to keep that in my work. When you started speech writing, were you trained as a speech writer or was it something you just said, oh, I can do this and somebody let you do it? Kind of the latter. <laughs> Anybody interested in politics. And if you work in a political office, everybody secretly, and they might not admit it on a podcast, but I will, everybody secretly wants to be Ted Sorensen. And every line you work on, you you want to be as great as that Kennedy first inaugural address. Ask not. I just started to write. And some of my early writings were terrible. That's for sure. I like to read good speeches when I was young, and I like to listen to good speeches. I didn't care which party they were from. When I worked at the Ontario legislature, for example, there was very articulate opposition leader. And I was part of, I was a junior role in the government that he opposed. But I always liked to walk over to the public galleries and sit and listen to him because he was just a master speech maker and a master debater. I think these days we're often so busy shouting at each other that we we don't step back. And it's like watching a, uh, in many ways, like watching a, a great hockey game or a football game, which is you don't have to like the other team, but boy, you can applaud and marvel at certain, at the skill level that folks on the other team bring to the game. And I found that I, I watched a lot of political speeches that I didn't necessarily agree with. And then, yeah, so I would, I would, whatever chance I got, I tried to write. Sometimes I would, as a student, I would send speeches, draft speeches to politicians that I, that didn't know me. I would just send it to them in case they needed it. And I usually stuck with historical references. And I, I quickly again discovered that there's not a lot of people out there doing a lot of history work, whereas often a a speech maker likes to make a historical reference in a community they're visiting or something like that. And I started to do that. And people, wow, wow, they thought I had a skill. So boom, I became a speechwriter to the Prime Minister of Canada. So you actually got responses to those oh, of course. initial yeah, yeah. letters. Back in the day, it was snail mail. That's the difference between Canada and the U.S. In the U.S., the CIA would be knocking at your door. Well, you know what? what they, you they might have knocked on my door, right? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure at this point, right? But I used to write I used to write to American leaders as well and or whatever when I would oppose or support something and I was in high school and my parents would laugh because they would come home and there would be a package from the, the office of President Gerald Ard, former President Gerald Ford or the U.S. Senate or whatever. I still believe, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I tell this to young people today and none of them listen to me. I saw it when I worked in the office of Canada's prime minister that snail mail letters are so rare these days that they actually have a better chance of getting through. Really? Yeah, because they're so rare. You can still get access today 
to people that you would have never, ever been able to get access to decades before. One example I have is is one Friday afternoon, I worked for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and he called me and he said, come on down to the office, I want to show you something. It was a project a great kid in grade five in Ontario had written about the Prime Minister, and the kid had the wherewithal and the guts to mail it to the Prime Minister of Canada and say, you know, hey, what do you think of my project? I said that to the PM. I said, sir, what? What do you think of the project? How did he treat you? And the PM laughed and said, well, he hit me pretty hard, but I deserved it. So on the spot, the prime minister phoned the kid. They pulled the kid out of class so he could have a nice 20-minute conversation with the prime minister of his country. And all because the kid wrote a letter. I'm going to remember that next time I have I start writing emails. <laughs> you go for it. It's, you'll be surprised who still answers them. Talk about some of the people you've written speeches for and what it was like to work with them. I spent the longest time with Prime Minister Harper. It was a remarkable experience to play a small role in crafting words and stories. I saw myself more as a storyteller. Again, my references to history. And other times I would call myself a researcher in that any public figure, not just politics, but my work's been in politics, any public figure by the time they get to a large, important place of leadership, they're extremely articulate. They know how to give speeches in their own style. So I always found what they needed were good, solid researcher, a research to base their speeches on. So I would try to find quotes and stories. I would dig out of history books. To a lot of people, they just seemed amazing. Like Arthur was this wizard who came up with this stuff. Well, it was, I shouldn't give away my secrets, but it actually wasn't that hard. They were, I was getting paid to, to look up these stories from history. And thanks to my dad, his example, I have a, a very large personal library myself. I only use the internet as my last choice of research. I, I still am old-fashioned and I like looking in a book. But the main thing about working in the prime minister's office, and it would be exactly the same at the White House, which is the most incredible feeling you get. Politics is often crisis-driven. Ten crises a day hit the senior office in the land because if anything easy could be solved in somewhere other part of the government and someone else take the credit, they would. Right? So often, often the top top dogs get stuck with these impossible problems. So what was incredible to experience was when a crisis hit, and if you were part of the response team, it didn't matter if it was your kid's graduation day. It didn't matter if it was your parents' 50th anniversary. It didn't matter if it was your wife's birthday. Fundamentally, it wasn't about you. In my case, the prime minister. And more importantly, it was about the country. And I don't know if any other job the rest of my life, because I'm 57 and I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I don't know if I'll ever feel that again, because, and again, that helps explain why public politics is so brutal on family life. Really, really difficult. But anyway, there were, it was uh, quite a feeling and also teamwork that the, you know, what hits the fan and this small team jumps into action you know no part of the team is going to falter because, again, it's not about you. And, of course, mistakes are made. Everybody makes mistakes. I keep repeating myself, but it's the strongest way I can put it, is you're in the middle of this. You can't let your country's leader down, and it's not about you. What a remarkable feeling that was. And my biggest thrill for me was Prime Minister Harper made sure I was able to be part of the Canadian delegation to go to Nelson Mandela's funeral. 
And, and that was, yeah, I can't even, I, I tell this again to young people is I don't care what party one is. If you're young, it doesn't matter to me if you're right, left, it doesn't matter. Just get involved in politics because it can take you to these remarkable places. And for me, I never in my life thought I would ever see Africa let alone to be at this incredible world event that brought the world together. And for me, I was just a kid from Scarborough, Ontario, and to be sitting in that stadium in Johannesburg at that historic moment when the whole world came together to honor such a probably one of the greatest figures of the 20th century, that would have never happened if I didn't get involved. I'm amazed when I meet somebody who says they never watch the news because it's too depressing. I'm a news junkie. I will sit here all day watching one of our cable news outlets because I feel like I'm a witness to history. Right now, as we record this, there's a war going on in Israel. You're watching something that people will only be reading about. Right. And you're seeing it unfold real time. That's what I found to see it up close. At the time these things are happening was, again, a very special feeling, but also fascinating to watch as a lifelong student of history. It's one thing to read about decisions national leaders make in a history book, but then to actually see it taking place. And like any good leader, Prime Minister Harper loved making decisions. The other thing you learn watching it up close is a good leader can't hesitate. And often in national and international politics, you have to make these on-the-spot decisions. And all you know making the decision is you don't have 60% of the information. But you can't hesitate. If you hesitate, then that message goes first to your personal staff and then to the cabinet and then to the various levels of the bureaucracy and the political caucus, depending on which party's in power. And it, um, that's a heavy burden for one person to carry. But I think the people who are good at these leadership jobs, they live for that, what they were built for, what they've prepped for. And it's also watching it all. It's one of the reasons what I find these days I'm saddest most about in politics is on both sides of the border, is we're getting to that point where we've forgotten just respect for the office. When we demean, in your case, the president, or in my case, the prime minister, when you personally demean him or her, you're actually demeaning yourself and our countries. There used to be a day where, again, I'm talking about my dad a lot today, I guess, but my dad always taught us to have a respect for the jobs these people do. And and within that, of course, you can be critical and you can dislike and disagree with a policy that one of these leaders is pursuing, of course. And citizenship, advanced citizenship, which is what we enjoy in both Canada and the United States, actually calls on you as a citizen to to do that. But within all that, you should still, I wish we had more of just respect, respect. And I wish we could stay away from some of the personal attacks that are just with the internet in particular, are just so easy to make these days. And, and we forget that these people that we're talking about often, they have families of their own, they're people, and we're getting, politics is getting so ugly and nasty that I'm fearing, and I think it's being, we're living it out, unfortunately, good people won't go into it anymore. Why would you? We're definitely seeing that down here in this state. We've always questioned who's running for office. I've always said, 
with the office of president, anytime somebody says they want to be it, that's a reason not to vote for them. <laughs> that's an interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I get that. It's the people who don't want to lead that might be better suited for it. I had a boss years ago who said to me once, as long as you make a decision, I will never fault you. We might talk about a better decision you could have made, but as long as you make that decision, that's, then you've got, I've got your back. And I, I thought, okay, that's really, yeah, that's what you want in a leader is someone who can make those snap decisions, good, bad, or indifferent, and not just sitting there waiting for something to happen. Well, and, and also, I wish we had more leaders who also would admit that they were wrong. <laughs> in the sense that you, you and I change our positions all the time once you get new information and things like that. So sometimes I find political leaders don't want to say that that they changed. And sometimes I, I just think, I just think the average person, the average voter understands that. Obviously, I'm not talking about huge matters of philosophy and things, but just certain policies and stuff, you should be able to say, wow, I have some new information now. So maybe I was wrong when I said that two years ago. Every so often you do hear it. I remember Barack Obama did that a couple of times where he said, my position has evolved. On yeah, this. of course. I will never fault the president for saying that because I want someone who's open to new information. Exactly. But then I find us, those of us in the media, we then portray it as a flip-flop. Right? I guess sometimes it is, but other times it's just all of a sudden you've got new information. Your last assumptions on a certain issue were built without all that new information. So you have to change. You and I do that every day in our life. I should have put that down as a question. What's the difference between a flip-flop and a change of position? I think the easy answer there would be a flip-flop would be a position changed purely for political reason, a valueless decision. You're just doing it for, you're doing it to get 2% more support from farmers in North Dakota or something like that. That's pretty cynical. When you write a speech, I want to know what the process is like for speech writing. Does the, the prime minister just reach out to you and say, I need a speech on this? Or I need to give a talk on that and then give me your ideas or is it just go write something and bring it back to me? It just depends. Sometimes the PM would say uh, you would run into him at something and he'd pull you aside and said, Arthur, I read this quote last week from Gladstone. You might want to look that up. There's that. But what we did was we had a director of speech writing. There were three of us under him and we would meet like say once a month. And I had been a newspaper reporter. So it was a very similar process into a story meeting. The director of speech writing was the editor and he would divvy up the assignment and then you would get your assignment. You knew the general thrust of the government that you were working for and you knew what the hoped for outcome was. Headline, for example, in the, we used to call it in the local press or the national press or the international press that you would want. And then you were unleashed into the federal government and you went out and sought information just like a reporter does. Now, the big difference was when you're speechwriter for the prime minister, everybody has to return your call. <laughs> but but it didn't mean they want to give you information. So then you would gather the information you, you can. You would do a lot of research about who the audience was. And maybe you would look for fun stories in, in that community or among that group. You would look for sad stories, whole bunch of things. And then when you got a draft together, you would do the both the most fun and the hardest part of your job wasn't dealing with the prime minister. It was dealing with your fellow speechwriters. You had to do a readout in front of your uh, colleagues. And boy, uh, they could be tough on you, I tell you. And then after that, there would be a fact check process. Then it would go to the prime minister 
and the prime minister obviously often would completely rewrite it a hundred percent and yeah and in my case mr harper had been a speechwriter when he was younger so there was you couldn't get anything by him it leads to a lot of humor there's a lot of humor in politics to break the tension some of the funniest people i've ever met are in politics again the prime minister i worked for was is probably the funniest man i know he has a tough exterior boy when you got him going he he could break the tension with a funny story yeah that's another thing about political leaders they're all great storytellers and they they just have wonderful stories sometimes maybe they're exaggerated and made up a bit but they're still good stories and they also develop a certain greatest hits in the sense that when you've been giving speeches for 30 years you sure know your laugh lines and there'll be certain stories you always get to your laugh and stuff and it also gives you a great appreciation for the political spouse who's had to sit and listen to these damn speeches for 30 or 40 years the same laugh lines and things like that and that i think is more skillful looking looking like you enjoy it and and that it's still funny on the 400th time you've heard it i think that's the greatest skill in politics not the leader i was a writer for television and and film and you would get you'd write a script and you would get notes from upper management and sometimes the notes were incredibly weird You'd sit there scratching your head going, what the heck are they talking about? Did you get notes like that from time to time as a speechwriter? Of course. And they shall remain secret for all time. (laughs) The first few times you work on the speech with a national leader, I think my experience would be the same as anywhere else in every world capital there is, is boy, you don't sleep. Those first speeches you work on when when you know that your president or prime minister is out delivering it, but by God, you can't get a fact wrong. That's pretty pretty nerve-wracking. And then the other thing now, this is where Americans are different than than Canadians is in Canada, if you're a political speechwriter and you get you're working on a speech with your party's leader and you get a great hit, like it's on the front page of the the equivalent of the Washington Post. They use that quote from that you dug up and you found, you crafted. Well, you deny it when your colleagues come to you and people say, "Wow, did you work on that speech?" speech at the United for the United Nations last week and you say yeah then they say wow I read in the newspaper that quote that you must have got that and even if you did you say no no he, he came up with that himself wasn't me it was unbelievable wasn't Whereas the United States, you guys, you guys are more open about the role of the speechwriter. When your media, you'll celebrate President Biden worked with speechwriter X on his State of the Union, or he watched the West Wing, uh, the TV show, uh, which I used to love, and the speechwriters get full, you know, get full exposure. Where in Canada, you're kind of a quiet, nobody's supposed to know who you are, and if you're in the paper, that's a bad thing. So I've always tried to follow that. I believe strongly that until you have the Courage to put your name on the ballot, you're actually not important. Yeah, you have a, a privileged role, but until you go forward and put your name out there as a candidate, it doesn't matter who you are. It's always about the leader. How did you end up writing about American president? How did those books come about? My historical interests, once again, I would often, as my career continued, I would pitch interviews to U.S. presidents 
solely about Canadian history and Canadian issues. So I I've had the honor, I interviewed Gerald Ford once when he was very old about his relationship with Canada's Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. I interviewed George H.W. Bush once about fishing in Canada's Arctic. And so I developed a specialty in knowledge about the relations between American presidents and Canadian prime ministers and where they intersected. And there's just some fascinating stories. And again, for me, I was lucky because not too many people work doing research in that field. So that kind of left a lot, lot of opportunity open for me because for a Canadian prime minister, basically you have, when you wake up in the morning, you have two priorities. One every day is the national unity of the country. That That is your first job when you take that first step out of your bed is to advance a United Canada one more day. And your second priority is your relationship with the United States of America, in particular with the President of the United States. That's your second most important job every single day when you get up. So I've developed a specialty in the study of that. And I, in particular, devoted a lot of research time to Jimmy Carter and Canada. It's always been an interest of mine. What was it about Jimmy Carter that attracted you to him as a subject? It came out of my childhood in the sense that my parents spoke about him quite a bit at the dinner table. They always, during his presidency, and I was very young, I would have been probably in grade six, seven when he, he entered the White House. They spoke of him with the highest respect, more so than I'd ever heard previous about a previous American president or one after. They always respected whoever the American president was, don't get me wrong, but they had a special trust in Jimmy Carter. These were obviously the Cold War years. My parents articulated often how relatively safe they felt with Jimmy Carter's controlling the West nuclear deterrent. They quite admired his quest for human rights. And then for a whole lot of family reasons, they very much admired the work, continuing work to this very day, that President and Mrs. Carter have done in the field of lifting stigma about mental health. So so in so many ways, I grew up with my parents kind of opened the door and I started to read every time Carter would write a book, I would read it, wrote to him when I was you know, in high school. And then finally, about 20 years ago, I read in the paper one day that about him teaching Sunday school down in little old Plains, Georgia, and how he would meet the public after church. So about 45 minutes later, I had a plane, a plane ticket down to Atlanta, and down I went and rented a car and went to see President Carter and got to meet him and then made some contacts in Plains. And rather than approaching him for interview requests through the Carter Center and his political staff, I guess you would call it, I went through Plains and did my interviewing with the president in Plains. That started, I would go down once or twice a year and talk to him. It's been quite an honor and a thrill to get you know, to get to know your hero and still like him. I was going to ask that. It's like, yes, that how did the private Jimmy Carter match up to the public Jimmy Carter? Very much what you see is what you get. Pretty much. He's lived so long and written so many books. His life in many ways is an open book and there's no topic that he won't discuss. His, the one thing that you do see with him is he respects you. He respects like picture how many times does a guy like Jimmy Carter get interviewed? in his life like thousands and thousands he appreciates good research and if you're not wasting his time if you've done your research pretty much anything on the table with him he's been incredibly open with journalists historians etc and for my wife and i the biggest thrill is when president mrs carter came to where we live kingston ontario to receive honorary degrees at queen's university here in kingston they stayed with us that was quite an experience to host a presidential sleepover in your house <laughs> 
<laughs> how were they as house guests? Oh, just wonderful. Very low maintenance. President Carter only asked for coffee and cereal in the morning. We wanted to lay out a big spread for them. Nope, they didn't. They were very simple there and very down to earth. Like I said, very low maintenance, except they do come with baggage, which would obviously be the Secret Service. <laughs> It was something else. My uh, planted ceremonial trees in my garden that we have plaque to this day. And it was a thrill of a lifetime, that's for sure. But it wasn't that it wasn't out of character for the Carters. As a student of the Carter presidency, I knew that when he first ran for president in 1975, 76, they didn't have any money. So they used to stay in supporters homes all over the United States. He even, even did that a couple of times as president. So he's a very humble man, very proud man, very proud, but also a certain humility with Carter that I'll always be attracted to. You are a fellow of the Queen's Center for the Study of Democracy. Explain what that is. That was a position I had a few years ago, and I worked under a scholar named Dr. Tom Axworthy. Uh, that's no longer going at Queen's. So it was just, we worked together on highlighting political history. He felt, and I agreed, there was a certain dearth of knowledge now about political history. So we created a book series to further celebrate history, political history. That's what we did. It was incredible experience. I had just come off. I spent four or five years as the research assistant to one of our prime ministers, Brian Mulroney, on his memoirs. So I started to work at the center at Queens after that. And it was, uh, again, a remarkable experience. And be able to share some of my experiences with young people was priceless. From your vantage point, how would you compare Canadian democracy to American democracy? Let's first do the, the successful building block, what we should both be proud of, which is our written constitutions are amongst the oldest in the world. We prove that our systems work. We've both gone on from our beginning to be incredible democratic experiments that in our in Canada's case 156 or so years United States are almost 250 then on the downside is increasingly we're not so bad in Canada but it's some of it's still there don't don't get me wrong politics should unite people not not divide them. And I think in many ways, our politicians who don't have the moral fiber of a Jimmy Carter, for example, they're discovering that you can actually get yourself elected by telling people what you're against, not what you're for. And if you start to hive off chunks of the population that way, with the internet now as well, it's very easy to micro-target and also to tell people who to blame for your problems, not how to come together and solve them. I think all of our Western democracies are in that a bit of a crisis point. Obviously, the United States is the world's greatest, greatest democracy. So you're kind of the experiment on TV that the whole world watches. And in recent years to watch, watch the United States be cut into this camp 50-50 is really been tough to watch, I won't lie, and as someone who loves America. But my interaction with Americans is quite contrary to what I see on my TV every night from the media. And in that most Americans, and I do speak politics most of the time when I talk to Americans, most Americans I know are right in the middle. They're not hard partisan, left or right. And and they are. They tell me how frustrated they're getting with the system. And the fact that I guess because the amount of people 
people voting is getting smaller and smaller, both sides are appealing to smaller and smaller portions of the electorate, and they're appealing to the extremes on all sides of issues. That's not good for the rest of us. You said that that's a problem in in all yeah. of the Western democracies. Is it that everybody is following the U.S.'s lead, and or are they figuring it's falling apart there, so it's fall, let's let it fall apart here? Well, here's the question I ask myself, and I'll admit, Steve, I don't have an answer. I've been in the last few years, just day after day, I come back to this same question. And my question is, what has changed? Has the population changed, citizens changed, or have leaders changed? Because I don't know about you, but I want to be challenged. I want my national leader to stand up there and say, we're going to the moon. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And taking me to a place like Kennedy did with the moon that challenges my citizenship, and it's not easy at all. There's Canadian examples of our first prime minister building a railway all the way, 3,000-mile railway in the 1800s, which was impossible to achieve, but he did it with pure political will. So I'm wondering, where's the big project and where is the president, or in our case, the prime minister, willing to risk it all and try for that moonshot? Because I think we will follow him if that person appears. Our leaders are not leading anymore. They are following what the people want, and the people are too stupid. Don't follow us. We knew what how to do things. We would have a full democracy. When I'm feeling particularly disillusioned, I, I listen to some of those Kennedy speeches. Take Like I, I said a minute ago, we go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And, and again, I think in the Western world, we've stopped asking that of our leaders lately. And I don't think it's all their fault. I think we've all kind of changing. And let's hope that somewhere out there, there's a young leader somewhere who's going to say, damn the torpedoes and start challenging us. But boy, I hope it comes soon. What's the relationship between Canada and the U.S.? How has it always been? And what is it today? Outside of politics, like for a minute, Canadian Americans are like cousins, really. There's disputes over cross-border lumber or pork quotas and all that kind of stuff. But it's usually like an argument within the fam. We fought wars together. We've faced off against foreign foes. That little matter, minor matter of the War of 1812 a few years ago, which we won, by the way, not just, uh, but anyway. So, yeah, so I feel, I think most Canadians, we're, we follow American news and things like that. And so, like, like I said, it, it's kind of like, like a family around the table. On the political side, like I said earlier, the most second most important job of a prime minister is his or her dealings with the United States and their president. I think I won't mince words. The Trump years were challenging, but I think they tested the alliances the United States had throughout the world. But I always kept in mind when Trump would do something wildly insane or nuts that 50% of Americans didn't vote for. Him. No, I, I, my father told me when I was young that, that one of the best things about being Canadian is that the fact you get to live next door to this really dynamic and amazing and friendly people. And dad used to say, there's a reason the United States is the only country that has put a man on the moon. 
And I've seen nothing in my 57 years to, to show me that that is wrong. So I feel very privileged to live next door to the United States. You also, the United States has a lot of problems, but you deal with them in front of the whole world. You're a very open country. You're one of the most open democracies on earth. I would finish off by quoting Bill Clinton, who happened to be one of my favorite U.S. presidents to watch. I liked watching Mr. Clinton because he told, always told you what he was for, not what he was against. And I, I, I liked that. But anyway, when things are tough, and if I'm watching CNN and I'm watching some of this crazy politics coming out of Washington, I always think about Bill Clinton's line that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what is right with America. And I try to, I think all of us need to remember that sometimes when things look dark, that that's what I do. And I always believe in America and there'll be a better day. There is not a whole bunch of Canadians asking the your government to build a wall on your southern border. <laughs> If Americans present us with a second Trump administration, then we're going to have to figure it out and deal with it. But at the end of the day, America will still be our best friends. Is there any question I've not asked that you would like to answer? No, I've had a great time. My thanks to Arthur Milnes for sharing his stories on Life Slices. It behooves us to listen to those who have witnessed history, latch on to the positives, and try to find the leaders among us who may take us to great places we have yet to be, and to consume as much information from history as we need to be responsible citizens wherever we live. Toward that end, pick up a copy of Arthur Milne's latest book, 98 Reasons to Thank Jimmy Carter, on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. As a true Canadian... Art may be too modest to pitch his book, but as a true American, I have no shame. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesley and Studios.